Welcome to another episode of The Accounting Insider. I'm Kim Nitschke. Today's episode, I sat down with Roger Davies. Roger Davies is a radiologist, entrepreneur, and a pilot. He studied in Sydney, and he's now based in Adelaide. He's patented solar energy solutions. He's come up with low-cost modular housing. And he's built a Tesla-approved building for $8 million. He now drives a Tesla, and I hope you really enjoy today's story about his life, what he does, and his work as a radiologist. The Accounting Insider. This is another thing that a lot of investors are unaware of. There's got to be an easier way. With Jim Metzke. It's achievable for anyone. It doesn't cost anything to set up a business. Because there are many great ideas out there, but it's the people that make ideas happen. Because once you unlock this formula, you, there's no reason to stop. Yeah. You just get better and better at it. And you just make so much money out of it. So, jumping straight into this, thanks for joining us today, Dr. Roger Davies, um, radiologist from Adelaide, head of Adelaide Medical Imaging. I'm so excited about today, and I'm not exaggerating by any fleet of imagination. I've been wanting to get you on this show for quite some time because you're such a fascinating person. And today, we're talking all things medical. Let's go right back to the start of your career. Can you just give us a bit of a background to who you are and what you do in the medical space? Sure. I, uh, it's lovely to be here with you and um, it's fabulous to to talk. I've, I find uh, uh, the the interchange of ideas is always throws new ideas up for me and it makes me uh, reevaluate what I've done or why I've done something and very often you get a, a, a new idea coming out of that process of reflection and reevaluation. So it's, uh, it's really good fun for me to do something like this with you, and I appreciate the chance. Um, I uh, grew up in Sydney. Uh, I'm born in Dorigo, which is northern New South Wales, a little town whose claim to fame is uh, one of the highest rainfalls in Australia. And they can get 100 centimetres, sorry, 100 millimetres overnight. There's quite a lot of rain to come down. Um, uh, mainly dairy farmers and their cows, and um, there used to be a bit of logging there, but that's gone now because of you know forestry protection. So uh, Dorigo is a tiny little town in the bush, and um, my parents came to Sydney when I was about five. Uh, moved into a suburb that was apple orchards at the time, and subsequently was completely overwhelmed by the Sydney development of you know smaller and smaller houses with larger and larger you know televisions in them. And uh, so I grew up in Sydney, uh, went to Fort Street Boys High, which is a, uh, a, a, a type of high school that we don't have here in South Australia. So that's a selective state-funded school. Um, my dad went there and my grandfather before him, so I applied and was able to be selected for schooling in the, this Fort Street Boys. Uh, notable people went there, John Singleton in advertising, uh, Neville Rann, who was at one point a, a Premier of New South Wales, uh, John Kerr, who was the former Governor General of, of uh, Note when he sacked Gough Whitlam and and uh, gave Malcolm Fraser the nod, so all sorts of reprobates went to Fort Street Boys High. <laughs> uh, I um, I graduated from there, and uh, at the time, uh, the selection process for medical school was purely based on marks. So pretty much anybody could get in if they were able to, you know, accommodate or. Or adjust to the exam system and and um, and you know work the numbers so that you've got a better mark than most other people. It's interesting since uh, since then they've changed to a progressive process of vetting people to get into medical school, 
And, you know, there's all sorts of screening processes now applied in different universities across Australia. I think probably I would never get into medicine again. I think I'd be knocked out of the first hurdle as being, you know, a little bit too quirky or or too uh, diverse in, in terms of what uh, might be perceived as the ideal doctor. And I'm not sure that knocking those people out at the beginning is necessarily good for medical technology and medical discovery because um, keeping people who are only mainstream tends to encourage conservative middle-of-the-road strategies and to some extent medicine grows because people are out at the edges looking for newness, difference, uncertainty, unexplained phenomena and, and those people make observations that then lead to new devices, new ideas, new treatments. So we've diversed, uh, so diverted from your question. Uh, so Fort Street Boys High, uh, Sydney Uni uh, Medical School. Uh, it was a, a curious course. Um, almost the entire course was um, multiple choice. And because I'm good at multiple choice answers, <laughs> I got through medical school with no problems. But at the end of it, you don't necessarily know a lot of medicine. And I think your learning as a doctor often starts the day you, you graduate and then you realise that it's actually, you know, in earnest, you have to be able to do all these things and know all the information and sort it and process it and problem solve. I think the um, uh, while I was at uni, I did uh, computer science and maths as non-degree subjects, and I had a, had a kind of a, an ongoing interest in science. Um, and uh, and that, that combination of uh, knowledge and understanding of physics, for example, um, led me to select a career in radiology that was very much based in uh, technology as opposed to people man management. Um, so radiology is uh, driven by the physics of radiation and the physics of ultrasound, the physics of MRI, and understanding those and having a really good grasp of the of the scientific principles allows you to use the technology to its best. But um, coupled with that, the the uh, process of imaging is very much about discovery and uh, problem solving. You know, uh, solving the clues to get to a diagnosis with the with the highest chance of success and the lowest likelihood of an erroneous diagnosis. So, in that sense, radiology is uh, hugely um, interesting and challenging, and continues to be so. It never becomes, uh, you know, a mundane, uh, repetitious type of process because you're always trying to grapple with new problems, understand new diseases as they're discovered or described, use new technologies. So uh, when I started um, in, uh, in radiology uh, training, there was no MRI in Australia, and it's now an absolutely mainstream uh, technology. Um, CT was only just coming in uh, when I was coming through, and so the first um, CT scanner that I saw was called an EMI scanner, and EMI, of course, were the record company that uh, uh, were the label that the Beatles made all their money on. And they made EMI enough money that the EMI could invest in this medical technology. And it was directly because of the Beatles label that the CAT scanner came to be a technological reality. So it's, uh, it's funny. So the EMI scanner uh, took 45 minutes to scan the brain. And the patient would be uh, basically locked into a, a cage with um, water bags wrapped around their head because the machine couldn't accommodate the difference between air and, and water when it was taking the slices through the brain. Uh, and so the patient would lie there for up to 45 minutes while they laboriously you know, did one iteration at a time. 
and at the end of that time, it was about another half hour of computing processing to then get the images out. So it was about an hour and a half process. And a, a CAT scanner would do perhaps uh, five or six patients a day. Um, and if we look at the technology now where we've gone to 160 or 320 slices uh, acquired simultaneously, image production in fraction of a second, a whole study is produced in minutes as opposed to hours. The range and diversity of information that you can now glean from, from CT has almost no resemblance to the very first scanners that were invented literally while I was going through medical school. So it's been a, a real technology journal, a journey along the way, um, fabulous uh, development of, of better strategies at imaging and imaging the body in different ways. So uh, x-rays use um, um, the fact that different parts of the body block x-rays to a greater or lesser extent. So that's an x-ray, you know, chest x-ray, something like that, where you can see air versus water or water versus fat. Uh, CT is able to detect um, differences in density around 100 times less than a chest X-ray. So you have this fantastic fine detail between substances that are very similar. So white matter and grey matter in the brain, for example, are, are only a, a, you know less than 1% difference in density and you can pick the difference between them on a CT. The spatial resolution of CT has... Uh, really taken us into a completely different area where we can now measure an object which is half a millimetre in each dimension. So that's like a speck of sand is large enough to show up on a, on a CAT scanner these days. Uh, ultrasound has another huge um, expansion of imaging. And so we went from um, barely being able to see um, a, a fetus inside the mother to now being able to measure um, a tiny hole, a pinhole in the heart of a 20-week gestation fetus. Um, I had one this week. Um, amazing detail, amazing ability to see structures inside clearly enough, for example, to do targeted injections. So we can deliver uh, steroid, for example, directly into the bursal space or the joint space or uh, the tendon sheath rather than just injecting in the area and hoping that there was an effect. It's interesting that um, my job has probably changed uh, by at least 80% every five years. If I look back five years, the stuff I was doing back then has either been you know, supplanted or surpassed or replaced by a newer strategy or a newer imaging technique. And uh, so over, over my own career, I've moved from uh, doing inpatient intervention in hospital. Uh, I would be, uh, for example, have an anaesthetized patient I'd have uh, a, 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 some sort of access device in their groin. I'd be steering a catheter to inside their brain, you know, so it's a kind of a long, you know, plastic curved tube through which you can deliver metal or, or glue or therapeutic substances. So that, that was sort of the first 10 years. That led me to developing that technique in children in particular, and children are technically a challenge because they're much smaller than adults and their tissues behave differently. The different disease processes that affect children are completely unlike adult processes. And eventually that uh, led me to be offered um, a job at Grand Ormond Street Hospital for Sick Kids in London. And uh, I, I, was, I was literally amazed that they even knew what I was doing, let alone were interested enough in my work to, to invite me to go to London. So um, about um, 20 years ago now, um, I up, uh, uprooted my family, then two uh, daughters, and we went to London and lived there for a year. It was a fabulous journey. Um, I, I loved the work. 
uh, that hospital had a draw of uh, at least 100 million people who would indirectly refer to it. So we used to see every week we'd see diseases I'd never even heard of, let alone knew anything about. So I'd be endlessly looking up, you know, and, and finding out about these really rare and wonderful things that turned up from the northern part of Africa, from parts of France and Spain, uh, Ireland, Italy. It was an incredible, you know, drain of patients just to that hospital. And they would all come there because that was the last point of, uh, you know, the last the last port of call when a child had a disease that was so unusual that no one else could treat it. Um, in the end, I came home because my two children announced that they weren't going to keep living in London. They were 11 and 8 at the time. Uh, my uh, One of my daughters said that London was like uh, a rotten apple and Australia was like a ripe peach. And the other one declared that uh, London was grey sky, grey rain, grey people. <laughs> it was a harsh assessment. <laughs> and uh, in fact, they've both changed their minds subsequently. They would love to go back to London as adults, you know, and, and experience the culture. Uh, we had a fabulous year that year because the hospital where I was working had a, a charity room office on the ground floor and you could go and get tickets any day of the week to, you know, a show of some description. And so we went out 150 times that year. I went out, you know, every second night we'd go to something. So we'd see uh, Nigel Kennedy as a fantastic violinist playing on the South Bank and he just did a, a, a most a remarkable concert that, you know, left me in tears. And uh, 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 plays Shakespeare produced in a way that I had never dreamed of, you know, in the, in the round or live or open air or with fabulous people acting. Um, amazing musicians. There was um, a Russian musician that we went to see one night, and it was a bit a bit lucky draw, you know. That was whatever tickets were on, we'd we'd go there. Uh, at the time, it was Lady Di's um, favorite charity, and they they had a kind of a good draw of people. So um, uh, this uh, violinist was billed as uh, the, leaving the audience slack jawed. Was the you know on the <laughs> that was a big call. I thought so. We went along, and uh, sure enough, we were we were literally open mouthed. He was most technically the most incredible player um, probably that I've ever seen. It was a remarkable performance. Uh, one night we went to see um, uh, Daniel Barenboim, who's a very, very eminent pianist and, condu and uh, conductor, uh, playing a Mozart piano concerto, a double piano concerto, so it's unusual to see it. So it's sort of back-to-back -back Steinways with a, another pianist and the London Symphony Orchestra and just fabulous performance. So that was, that was a brilliant year and it was real... Um, Culturally, it was a huge experience for us all. And, uh, stepping back um, to Australia, I, I, funny enough, I didn't mind, and I, I can still recall, we flew back from London at the end of two winters in what they called a summer, right, which was uh, which was only like our winter. You know, it was it was literally grey sky, grey sky, grey rain, um, and uh, so we'd had this miserable summer. In fact, it was funny. The the uh, hospital where I was working. In the X-ray department, had a skylight in the in the roof over the clerical area where the films were collated, and it was about five months after I'd got there that I realised it was a skylight. It was the first time that the sun actually came down. It was the next May, you know, before there was a shaft of sunlight, and I was like, "Oh, it's it's the sky." I just assumed it was a light until then, you know, because it was grey like everything else. Anyway, so we'd we'd had that that brief summer, and then and then the second winter, and that by by that stage my kids were ready to you know come home without me, and um, we stepped off the plane after a mainly night flight London to Singapore, and then it was the next day as we flew into Australia, and it was like uh, it was like stepping into a child's 
uh, picture book, the colours in the sky and the grass were so green, that incredible intensity of colour in Australia that we we don't appreciate because it's you know seen to be normal for us. But to come from a dark European winter to this fantastic kaleidoscope of colour was fabulous. So Adelaide's a great place to live. Uh, I'll cut it short. I uh, then uh, spent five years uh, as a public hospital director of radiology at the Queen Liz and Lyme McEwen hospitals. Uh, managed to make a little bit of a stir by ordering an MRI machine that uh, argu arguably <laughs> should have been delivered, was promised, but uh, at the last minute uh, there was some some hiccups with the delivery and I, um, I made sure that the machine came to the hospital because it was well and truly needed. Um, I, uh, I got into a bit of trouble for that and subsequently decided that the, um, the path for me was possibly not in the public sector. I'm a bit of a, a disruptor of, of processes and don't follow them as well perhaps as I should. So um, I by chance had uh, started some local work in Orange in New South Wales. Um, they were desperately short of radiologists and they were short in particular of people who could do interventions. So um, delivering uh, pain management injections into the spine or into the neck, into the knees and shoulders, and that was part of my um, expertise by that stage I developed that work. Um, so I found myself going to Orange more and more regularly because I loved the work and the people were very appreciative and the hospital system there was well organised and um, we were doing a lot of great work for people who just didn't couldn't access that technology, you know, literally this side of Sydney. Um, and uh, I, I found the travel was a bit onerous because I was it's almost a you know eight hour journey by the time you get to Adelaide Airport, fly to Sydney, miss the morning flight, get the afternoon flight. You know, you're at four o'clock in the afternoon, you're arriving at work for the day, and so that dragged after a bit. Um, for a little while, I drove up and down from Sydney so I could kind of get out of the Sydney airport and then drive three hours to work. That was better than sitting in Sydney airport for most of the day. And I then hit upon the idea of uh, learning to fly and flying myself uh, from Orange to Adelaide each week. So uh, one summer I took lessons and got my license, uh, bought a little two-seater plane and uh, started to fly most weeks to and from uh, to and from Adelaide. Uh, Fabulous little aircraft. Um, as it turns out, um, once you've taken off and kind of got yourself to cruising height for the next three hours, it's about three hours and 12 minutes. Um, really, you just change the petrol tank each hour. That was all there was to do. And the rest of the time was thinking, right? So quiet, you know, uninterrupted thinking time. My little aircraft um, uh, flew at about 400 kilometres an hour, just under 400 kilometres an hour, and, and quite high. I could fly up to 20,000 feet. And um, and that's the that's the bottom of you know jet airspace, uh, and it used less fuel than I would use if I drove a car across the hay plain. And I was quite surprised when I worked that out that I was so fuel efficient. And I, I started looking into why aircraft engines were more fuel efficient than cars, and how to improve the fuel efficiency in car engines, and you know how how I could kind of make a difference to fuel economy because by then the the whole idea of of the fossil fuel economy was starting to look less certain than had been the, you know, the case previously. This is about 10 years ago now. Um, I worked out a way to use the hot exhaust gases from an internal combustion engine uh, to drive a turbine that would make power and add that power to the car wheels so that it improved the fuel efficiency. Um, in principle, a great idea. In practice, a regulatory nightmare. So putting an, an add-on device to a car 
you void the warranty, you know, the manufacturer doesn't support it anymore, the, you know, the device has to be, you know, approved by every regulatory authority. So in, in practice, great idea, but I could never sell it. it, you know, it wasn't going anywhere. But I'd put a lot of time into developing this turbine. So I looked around for an alternate heat source um, that would um, uh, be able to drive my turbine and thought straight away that perhaps the sun would be hot enough to, to provide me with a, some sort of motive power. Uh, in general terms, heat engines are more efficient if they're hotter. So if the difference between the hot side and the cold side of a heat engine is large, then the relative efficiency is high. Uh, conversely, if you're trying to collect solar thermal, so hot water as energy, the hotter you make the device, the less efficient it becomes. So there's a, a trade-off, there's a balance where you hit the sweet spot between efficiency of collection and efficiency of utilisation. Um, I discovered that the conventional solar evacuated tube collectors didn't work as well as the manufacturers claimed in the wintertime in particular, so that in winter the water was just barely warm, it would be tepid, and and uh, so as a, as a round-the-year device, it just wasn't collecting enough energy in the winter. I had the idea one weekend of improving the performance of a solar collector by adding a second lot of radiant energy to the undersurface of the collector. So normally the top gets the heat, the bottom loses heat. So I thought, right, I will use the both sides of the collector to add heat to it and it should work better. And indeed, it, I, was, I was delighted by the improvement in performance. Subsequently, we did the maths to generate a fixed uh, planar reflector, meaning a flat surface, and so painted colour bond, um, or two surfaces. And if you arrange the geometry, the collector can receive uh, up to twice as much energy as it would otherwise you know, be able to gain. And we could arrange it so that the collection period was extended in the morning and in the afternoon. So it was a longer period of collection. The collector gets hotter quicker and it stays hotter for more of the day. And that translated out to sometimes a threefold improvement in performance compared to just the standard collector. Uh, that was so valuable that I then went on to patent that, and we've been granted a, Australian, a full Australian patent, and we're now in the process of patenting that overseas. Um, I was then making very hot water to run my turbine. So far, so good. Uh, I realised when I sat down and thought about it that the byproduct or the or the end product from the turbine would be a very large volume of moderately hot water or warm water in fact and if i had to get rid of that warm water in order to run the thermal process it was quite expensive i needed a big heat exchanger it was made the whole process marginal from a commercial point of view and i always had in mind that if i invented something that was too expensive to actually put into practice i was wasting my time and everyone else's so i was always trying to focus on on ways that energy collection could be affordable and therefore valuable. So I thought that if I could turn that waste heat energy into something useful, um, like heating a room or a building, that it would then become valuable energy as opposed to a nuisance. So I turned my attention to how I could deliver heat into a building and came up with a, a strategy of uh, modifying a standard idea of hydronic heating, which is running pipes through the building. I also calculated that uh, it would be possible to store quite large amounts of energy in hot water um, for a substantially lower cost than storing energy in a battery, an electric battery. And to put um, some sort of numbers around it, it's around a tenth of the cost. So heat storage is very cheap compared to battery storage. 
in the winter, it meant that I could collect heat on the days when it was sunny, store it for a few days in my tank, and then deliver it to the occupied building when it needed the heat. And therefore, I had, a, if you like, a, a dispatchable energy or a storage process, which was vastly competitively better than the current cost of PV panels and an electric battery pack. So I was very excited that I had a great product until someone pointed out to me that I would also have to cool the building in the summer in order for it to be a year-round valuable technology. So uh, a lot more thinking went into how we could do that and we in, ended up with a, a process where we evaporate water at night um, that makes the water colder and we store that cold water for use the next day to cool the building. So we move the uh, the uh, the heat, heating and cooling process to take advantage of the change in temperature from day to night. And even uh, it's possible to store energy for weeks or even months in a tank if it's cold water and then use it, um, you know, when you really need it in the middle of a heat wave in, in February in Adelaide. So at the moment, I've got a very large tank filled with rainwater in the building that we will talk about. And that's currently storing energy at night by cooling the water and I'll use that water next February if I need it. So that's a that's the equivalent of um, megawatt hours worth of, of energy, which I can store really at no cost for months at a time. So I thought I was on a winner. I could heat the building and I could cool the building. So I had this valuable tech. Uh, and someone then pointed out to me, I would also need to be able to dry the air coming into the building because on a hot, moist day, if you bring air into a building, it then starts to condense and and can rain inside if you cool that air down to the point where the, the dew point is, is exceeded. So I had all my heat energy from my solar thermal collector, which in the summer was making squillions of, you know, kilowatts of heat, and came up with a strategy for basically sucking water out of the air using a, a, a process uh, which is widely known but not used much. If you have a, a shaker of salt and you rest it on the table, after a while it starts to get crusty because it's sucked some water out of the air. So I use a, a salt solution to dry the air and I then use my heat to, um, to force that water out of the salt to regenerate the salt so it's dry again ready for the next uh, batch process of heating. So I've got a, 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 a bank of, of uh, salt which is being regenerated and it's releasing hot moist air directly out of the building and then I've got a second bank which has been regenerated and that's sucking water out of the air coming into the building. So we can dry the air, we can cool the building and then we can heat the building in the winter with this process of evaporation, uh, desiccation and storage. And, and finally I, I, I was happy that I had a suite of technologies that could fully replace air conditioning systems. Uh, the final, if you like, uh, element to success was to then design a building envelope that was well enough insulated and low enough in draft, uh, you know, air ingress and uh, comfortable and uh, aesthetically pleasing, um, but very low energy consumption in order to have a building that was able to be run from its rooftop. So our ultimate goal was to build a building that was completely uh, self-contained if it needed to be. That process started about three years ago with design and uh, the hardest elements of the design were actually the air conditioning system, which um, a conventional mech engineer would simply say can't work and in fact did say wouldn't work. Um, so I went to a couple of firms, three firms in the end in Adelaide, big. Uh, so Norman Disney Young did the air conditioning for the new Royal Adelaide Hospital. Um, they did a feasibility study for me and said, can't work, thank you for coming. 
uh, went to Lucid, another group of engineers in town who said that if I paid them a very large amount of money, they would be able to tell me if it would work or not. <laughs> I said, no, no, that's not what I was asking. And I then went to another group of engineers who I won't name who said, uh, it's a fantastic idea. Yes, it will work. We've done the numbers. Um, we'll own that technology and we'll license it back to you. And I said, no, no, I, I came to you with this idea. It wasn't the other way around. So in the end, I used a, a very small local firm who were fabulous, uh, old guy who was um, – now retired, in fact, but he was very uh, down to earth, practical, and he helped me through the through the nitty gritty of getting an air conditioning system for a big building designed and and uh, commissioned. So we ended up with this fantastic building. It's um, three stories, three thousand square meters, uh, a, a fantastic space to be in because it's got this wonderful light well that comes down through the middle of the building that I use to exhaust air out of the building. So it's a natural buoyancy driven uh, ventilation system. And um, uh, the building performed better than I had hoped, um, down to the point where we realised that um, if I put uh, PV panels on some of the roof area, that I could become completely self-sufficient from an energy point of view. Uh, last September, we had the grid failure, which obviously no one was really expecting to be as bad or as, or as damaging as it was. And suddenly the idea of the grid being the ultimate resource was broken. People realised the grid was expensive and now no longer reliable. Uh, so I went off grid uh, in April just um, a few months ago and we've run the building through the winter with no external energy supply at all uh, to prove that we can run run the building. And last summer I was collecting the data for the summer months to prove that I could do it in the summer as well. So a couple of weeks ago we had a, a big off-grid party and I got the Federal Minister for Energy and Environment to come along and he, uh, instead of cutting the ribbon, he cut the uh, symbolic uh, electric cord between uh, the grid and ourselves with a pair of pliers and, uh, and he officially uh, opened the building for, for uh, you know, public interest and uh, it was a fabulous ceremony. I'm very appreciative to him for coming along and it certainly created a lot of interest. Um, we got a, a really good press coverage with uh, Australian Financial Review and the land and Tizer and uh, um, Australian all ran good pieces on us and um, uh, we got a, a lead story on ABC News that night. Uh, and since then, um, you know, my phone hasn't stopped ringing. We've been overwhelmed with, um, you know, interest and, uh, and some orders. We've converted uh, our, our concept into sales. Um, and, uh, and I'm hopeful now that we will be able to bring that, roll that out to, you know, to basically on a large scale substitute existing grid-based energy systems with either near self-sufficient or completely self-sufficient rooftop collection. Oh, wow. What amazing. That's just it's absolutely been, it's unbelievable. Been it's been fabulous. So questions that are coming into my mind. Like I, I read about this place. This is actually called the Fluid Solar Thermal House. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And online it says it cost $8 million. Is that number roughly right? That is roughly correct, yes. Okay. So can you talk me through the numbers? Like how do you – like is it is it working financially? So what we'd like to do with the space in the longer term is provide a resource for medical practitioners who will be needed in the northern suburbs of Adelaide because that's the major growth area. Um, really the southern suburbs are largely constrained by the sea on one side and the hills on the other and all of the development is largely taken 
Um, there are little pockets of land that can still be built, but by and large, the southern suburbs of Adelaide have got as big as they can be. So as Adelaide grows, it will have to grow north out past Gawler. And there are a series of new suburbs already coming on on stream, you know, Blake's Crossing and uh, Andrews and Farm and so on. Um, those hospital, those suburbs are all north of the hospital, La McEwen, um, and from there it's simply impossible to drive even to the Royal Adelaide for, for routine um, hospital care. So I can see a time that the, uh, the northern suburbs will be like Parramatta and Sydney, it'll be almost the centre of the city proper. So to that end, with a sort of long-term vision in mind, I built what I, what I know can be a medical centre for um, up to 200 people you know, staff and, and doctors and so on, um, giving outpatient services to people in the northern suburbs of Adelaide. So I have complete confidence that that process will unfold and that we will indeed uh, be become a medical centre. In the meantime, I've got this fantastic space and it's, uh, and it's a resource that I would like to um, and have indeed um, opened up to young inventors or people with great ideas, um, but they're unable to convert from something in their bedroom or their living room to a business. And that whole concept of um, co-working space or you know, sh shared space, office space means someone can you know, buy a desk for, I'm gonna say $50 a week, and they can be out of their house and actually in a place where other people are also excited and also learning how to run a business or to develop a business, offer them some mentorship and some a physical um, you know, space and access to photocopiers. And, and all of the things that you need to try and take take an idea from just an idea to a small business venture or even a larger business venture. So that idea of co-working spaces as a way of getting people into uh, some form of, of um, their own business as opposed to being an employee is, is uh, I think, going to become the normal way of, of uh, small businesses operating. I think we're going to move away from having you know, a fixed shop front where you'll use the premises when you need to be there and you might be out visiting clients, you might be, you know, off-site. Uh, so that way of, of sharing space is a much more efficient way to run a business and to, in that sense, provide that service. So we've got room for about 150 people in a co-working environment, which we've called the Innovation Grid. And I'm actively looking for people who want to work in the field of sustainable living, if I can call it that. So. Uh, both energy and the related um, parts of running a house, building a house, operating a house with smart technology, um, using you know modern disruptive uh, apps and technologies to try and improve efficiency and and lifestyle without costing more money. So I can see that there's a big future for generating an area or a space where people come and are. Uh, enthused and invigorated by being in a place where lots of other people are all trying to develop new ideas and services. So, uh, uh, you know, like from a financial point of view, these ideas and these, I've, I've, in my own career, I've had so many great ideas, but generally speaking, um, they're hard to get off the ground. They start out with all the best intentions, but they end up costing me a pile of cash. <laughs> And I end up either closing them down or selling them out or, or whatever. Like, so with hearing all of these amazing ideas, I'm just trying to think of the numbers behind it. Like financially, I imagine down the track when you get medical practitioners into it, it will be a beautiful little business to have. But at the moment, I'd imagine that as it's a prototype, would it be fair to say that it's um, not um, an efficient use of your finances at the moment? <laughs> 
Look, I was approached last week uh, from a, a, a developer in New South Wales uh, to find out whether I would like to uh, participate in a project to build 2,000 homes. Now, um, that alone would would be enough business for me for the next 10 years. Um, and, and so we moved from, in that sense, building energy systems to building complete homes. Uh, I didn't quite finish the little story. So... Uh, we've developed a modular home, which um, is based on a, a panel which is able to be fitted into a container or onto the back of a standard uh, semi-trailer. So 2.5 metres is the kind of maximum width without going wide load. And so we've developed these uh, these modules that plug together to become a home. And I can do uh, one or two storeys and I can do... Um, any number of bedrooms um, and so we basically plug them together like an enormous IKEA house um, because I uh, am not constrained by the other dimensions so it has to be 2.4 wide but it can be four meters in the other direction I can have nice tall rooms I can have clear stories I can have fabulous light the whole building is made with a foam uh, panel which is manufactured here in South Australia with a color bond cladding uh, it looks quite smart uh, but it's also very energy efficient uh, very low heat losses in and out, you know, from summer to winter. Uh, nice tight uh, bond so that the house is very airtight and therefore you don't get drafts which destroy your energy efficiency. Uh, and because I can containerize them, basically we can build a house and put it anywhere in the world. Um, we're going to start in South Australia, but, but obviously there's a kind of a broader strategy there. Because it's built in a factory and then pre-assembled, the on-site building time is is really much lower than a traditional build. And part of this idea came to me because I watched the guys building my big building and I would arrive most days for an inspection or for a site meeting and pretty much always they'd be sitting in the tea room having <laughs> having something to eat. And I, after a while I wondered how it was that the building even got built because <laughs> it seemed that mostly they were in the tea room. They did, indeed, they did a fabulous job building the building. Um, but... Uh, an Australian uh, on-site worker uh, costs typically in excess of 150000 per annum per worker, and a skilled labourer is even more expensive than that. So the cost of building in Australia is, is almost entirely driven by the high labour cost of, of constructing anything. Most buildings in Australia, almost all buildings in Australia, are built on-site. So it's variations on a guy with a hammer and a ruler and a saw and he saws up you know he cuts whatever it is and he makes it fit so the exceptions to that um multi-story buildings these days uh, typically will have a pre uh, a factory built steel frame you know where each part is exactly measured and and constructed you know in a cad environment and that steel frame goes up very quickly uh, after that everything slows down so typically you know, the floors have to be poured, you know, with concrete, um, some sort of supporting steelwork, props underneath, Then you've got to wait two weeks before you can take the props out to build the next floor and so on and so on. So there are some mandatory times that it takes to build a building in Australia because most of the processes are on-site labour-intensive. What that means is although our wages are the best in the world or close to the best in the world, our housing is also approaching the most expensive in the world and your house acquisition is the biggest single cost that you face as a family or as an individual. So in a sense, we're, we're a very lucky country because we've got great incomes, but we are in that sense not much better off than the average person anywhere because our houses are so expensive and that's a kind of a 30-year process to get that mortgage down to zero. 
So I looked at these guys while they were building and thought, there is another way of doing it. If we expand or extend that idea of the steel framework to most of the fabric of the house and, and have it all constructed in a factory and made exactly to size, that house could be built much more quickly on site. So I took that idea, and you might remember I've been working on this turbine now for some eight to 10 years. To build a turbine, the precision is in the order of 10 microns. You know, So to have the bits fit together and not fly apart when they're rotating at 6,000 RPM, it has to be built exactly. So I knew that Australian factories were perfectly capable of building down to tolerances of one millimeter, for example. In the building industry, a tolerance of five millimeters is thought to be very good. It's more like a centimeter, so you kind of have a plus or minus. So basically you have a gap that you then fill up with some filler in order that the drafts don't wash in. So I said, okay, we're going to make uh, a whole house in a factory. It's going to be built to a tolerance of one millimeter. It's going to fit inside a container or on the back of a truck. It's going to be able to be assembled rapidly. And therefore my on-site labor content is going to be dramatically reduced. My, my factory time obviously is more, but my on-site time is much less. And the net cost of the house is going to be lower. So we've gone ahead and we've done that. So these houses are well insulated, uh, naturally ventilated. So I use natural buoyancy, uh, quite light. So the foundations are quite you know modest in terms of the size. And the main thing the foundation does is stop the house being blown away in a, you know, a windy day. So you have to hold them down because they're quite light. Um, we have built, uh, for example, a little one-bedroom uh, house uh, for a, a caravan owner's show, which was up in Handorf a couple of weeks back. Um, built it in three days on site, um, dismantled it in one day, and then rebuilt it in two days down at Fluid Solar. So in the car park of Fluid Solar at the moment is a, a little one-bedroom house, which includes a bathroom, kitchen, a, a mini laundry, uh, you know, the full... So it's a, a, it's a full little holiday cabin, if you like. Um, that we built in three days. Um, we think we'll get that build time on site down to two days as a, a likely speed that we'll be able to do them. So we could do a, a four bedroom house in a week, for example. Now, in general terms, it's just not possible to build a house in less than 14 weeks. And that's if everything goes smoothly, you know, a normal house. So if we can get the build time down to a week or, you know, something in that order, uh, the cost of the house is less. And so we're aiming to bring that idea of, of affordable housing, which is still uh, you know, smart and comfortable to live in with an energy system that basically allows you to go off-grid or be near off-grid to make the whole of the housing experience affordable. Um, I'd like to bring that to people on low fixed incomes who at the moment simply can't even think about getting out of the rental market into home ownership or perhaps simply offer long-term accommodation, which is affordable for someone on a you know on a government pension or a, some sort of uh, similar um, scheme um, poor people include old people who haven't managed to save enough in their superannuation to live comfortably in retirement so they at the end of the day their fallback is the pension uh, it's very difficult to live comfortably on the pension and if your home ownership or your rental cost is two-thirds of your total income each week then you're really left with very little discretionary income. So if I can bring down the price of housing, then I can make it more affordable and everybody that is in one of those houses will benefit from both the lower cost of the house and also the energy efficiency of the house. So a four bedroom house built in four days. Yeah, it's, and a, it's an exciting concept. And off the grid. It can be off the grid, that's right. Because we're 
doing the envelope of the house to be energy efficient, then the amount of energy you need to to run the house becomes much lower. Uh, where the grid is available, it simply reduces the size of the battery pack that you would need, and the battery's cost is is one of the major contributing costs to it. You know, the total cost of an energy system. And I've got my builder's license. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. No, fantastic. I'm looking for builders. Good. Well, you've got my number. Give me a call. But even with, I'm thinking about foundations here. If you don't need a thick slab, you could potentially do pods. Correct. So small, to anchor small the house. House. So typically 400 by 400 by 200 uh, in a low wind category or 400 by 400 by 300 uh, per, per footing. Um, very quick um, to do. Easy. Um, and and it even lends itself to those um, uh, concreteless uh, systems, you know, where you hammer a, oh. a stake in the ground and uh, you use the just the weight of the earth around the, you know, the little um, – so that that in that sense, you could have those in, in a day um, yeah. and, and um, you'd be, you know, house finished. I've also got an interesting idea. We, we haven't done this yet, but – I'm thinking that there's a lot of urban stock. Um, I'll, I'll backtrack for a moment. In terms of development, greenfield development is easy because you've got a blank sheet of canvas, but it's not as energy friendly from the Earth's point of view because you're busy knocking down some fields or some forests in order to build housing. So one of the things that I would like to develop is called greyfield renewal, where you renew a, a house or a suburb that's tired and at the end of its useful life by replacing the housing stock with something which is more energy efficient and, and more modern to live in. So one of my ideas is that uh, we could potentially uh, have everything lined up, have a council approvals and so on. Um, in a two-week period, I think we could demolish a domestic-sized house, uh, take that away and re replace it with one of our new nice three or four-bedroom energy efficient houses. Uh, so in theory, I could um, send mum and dad to Bali for a couple of weeks or Queensland and they'd come back to a new house. So it's a, it's a, it's a bit of an extension of, you know, make my back garden beautiful on the weekend. It's come back to a new home. And that, that would allow large-scale urban renewal uh, using existing you know, land and, and very quickly turn that land into um, better accommodation but also affordable accommodation. So... Talk to me about the numbers. So it's four days to build. What sort of costings have sure. we got? Sure. So you're a builder, so you'll yeah. appreciate this. So our base cost is under $1,000 a square metre. Okay. And that's competitive with any current building technology. When you add in the time factor, so if you've saved that 14 to 28 weeks of holding costs, where for a family you've got to go and rent somewhere else, for example, typically redoing an old house is a nine-month project. It's not a six-month project. So people can be, in that sense, out of pocket by a year's worth of rent plus, you know, the holding costs of their home. Um, so is, once you factor in the much lower holding costs of, of building, the whole process becomes very competitive with existing technology. And then have you had anyone look at it from an aesthetic resale point of view from, you know, like... Um, let's say we built a 300 square meter home. It costs us $300,000. Is there a market there for people happy to pay that? I mean, traditionally in Adelaide, we're, all our houses are made out of brick. That's true. And if you go to an inspection, you've got people tapping on the wall to work out whether it's a solid brick wall or not. Yeah. You know, have you factored in elements of that? I mean, is this house going to be viewed as being a transportable, for want of a word? Sure. And we're very keen to avoid that that uh, genre of finish. 
And so our aim is to have everything internally looking very much like a traditional house, except that it's not brick. Interestingly, if you say to somebody, look, what's your current utility bills? And there are many people in Adelaide paying uh, 3,000 a year altogether in utilities. So, you know, their gas might be 300, their electricity might be another 400 per quarter. Four sevens is 28, it's about $3,000 is a very common number. If you said to somebody, look, would you like a house with no utility bills? That's a saving of 3,000 per annum. There are many people who go, actually, that's pretty attractive. I quite like that idea. And I, I love it. I mean, my, my power bills are a hell of a lot more than that, and I've got solar panels as well. But getting back to it, if I look at your house from the outside, does it look like a normal house? Uh, it can look like a normal house. We've actually deliberately set out a, a kind of an iconic strategy. So okay. I've I've changed the kind of look and feel to, um, uh, in general terms, light into the middle of the building because I find that light coming in through a clear story changes the internal feel of the building. Having light come from two different angles turns out to make the the space inside feel quite different. And uh, and it's only when you walk into those spaces that 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 effect becomes apparent. This um, this dawned on me uh, uh, quite recently. I decided I would test out my technology somewhere on on myself as a first you know first guinea pig. So we rebuilt um, three bedrooms over what was the garage of my existing home, uh, and you know it crept across onto the laundry and you know made a little bit of extra room. Uh, down the down the passageway, so we've we've built three bedrooms. It's got this external uh, cladding with the foam panels, and uh, and the floors are heated and cooled by this um, new technology. Um, the build time, because the builder was doing it using the traditional methods, was the same time as it took to build any building. So we saved no money on that because the cladding cost is very similar to any cladding and so on. But it did give me a good handle on how it could look and how we could make it look you know good and like a normal home um, one of the things i did because i had a little south facing bathroom with a tiny window that had to be very high because we were looking onto a neighbor and you've got to have you know small high windows i said look we'll put a we'll put a skylight in the in the ceiling uh, and i was amazed at the difference that it made with the skylight coming in as well as the other light both to both tiny windows but because the light is coming from two directions it changes the the airiness or the lightness in the room. So I try and always design uh, rooms with, with either two windows or a clear story and, and another window or a light coming in from the external. And it does change the spaciousness of the home. Because we are not obliged to have a roof cavity, it's a single panel, typically 150 millimeters thick, and the external surface is the roof and the internal surface is the internal ceiling of the home. So typically slightly raked ceilings and we can do any angle we like over two degrees, but we've typically done somewhere between four and six degrees as the rate ceiling. But it does mean that the internal dimension of the room in my smallest building is 3.7 meters to the top of the ceiling in the smallest home. And that's, that's uh, so in the old numbers, eight feet, you know, is a sort of 2.4 meter. So if you go to 3.2, 3.6, 3.7 meters for your ceiling, the whole room feels spacious. It does not feel tiny. And one of the features of older Adelaide homes is the fact the ceilings were up at you know nine or ten feet, so you had you know three point two meter ceiling. It it makes a difference to the feel of the room. It's valuable from my point of view because that's a place that hot air can go that doesn't affect the person. So as soon as you're above eye level, the fact that the air is hot up the top doesn't make you feel any hotter. 
and it means that I can use that hot air at the top to then exit out this clear story that I'm using for light and drive natural buoyancy. So the whole of the ceiling is focused towards conducting the wasted heated air to the top of the building where it's then exhausted naturally without having to have a fan. So we use the natural buoyancy to drive airflow through the building. I use the skin of the building itself to radiate heat into the rooms um, and, and a, a radiating wall is much more comfortable than a point source of either heat or a, a ducted blowing hot air into a room. As soon as you've experienced the radiant heating effect, it's, it's clearly superior to and preferable to point heating of any description, which includes reverse cycle air conditioning or radiators, you know, where you've got, you stand and you burn your feet and your head's still, you know, in the draft. Can we move over to your connection and association with Tesla? Sure. So you drive a Tesla? I do indeed. It's a fabulous car. Now, I remember seeing this at a party, I think it was about two years ago, and we couldn't find the exhaust pipe. We went out to the street and we saw the car parked on the street. Uh, and the Teslas, as people will know, have um, sort of unusual um, uh, doors and door opening mm-hmm. devices. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a very unique car and obviously no exhaust pipe, which looks unbelievable from the back but there's so many other features that are so unique in that car but can you please tell us about your tesla and your connection with the company sure it's uh it's the p85d and uh you have to understand the the naming system a little bit to know uh what that means so the 85 refers to the nominal kilowatt hours in the battery pack and to put that into perspective my uh, my building my big 3000 square meter building has a battery pack with a with a, a useful capacity of 100 kilowatt hours and my car has 85 kilowatt hours <laughs> of battery in it so it's a big battery for a little car wow um, that battery uh, typically takes uh, six to eight hours to charge uh, from 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 completely flat and depending on how I drive the car that will get me somewhere between 350 and 500 kilometers. So in practical terms, if you've just driven 400 kilometers, it's time to have a break. And in general terms, it's usually possible to find a place to plug the car in. If you're at a you know a holiday cabin, you plug an you know, extension cord into the, into the power and by the next day, you've got another 200 kilometers or so of useful range. So the car is mainly used around the city where I drive to and from my place of work. Uh, the big building that we've been talking about has 100 kilowatt almost 100 kilowatts of pv panels on the roof and most of the year i have surplus power i have enough power in the middle of summer to charge seven or eight cars simultaneously and so i've provided uh, car charging spots i wrote to tesla and said hey i've got this free power i'd like to you know have some outlets and tesla immediately sent me two of their uh, outlet charges so it's now a destination point on the tesla website for people in south australia they can come to fluid solar house and plug in and it's one of the few places where you're actually charging your car from the sun. So it's a genuine uh, fossil fuel free solution. And one of the criticisms of electric cars is of course that, oh, well, you're just using the power from the power station that was burnt coal anyway, so it's not really saving anything. But from my from my own experience, we will be able to provide um, something approaching a million kilometers per year of car travel if my uh, if my occupants in my building drove electric cars, they could charge two or three times a week, uh, you know, from my roof. And whenever there was surplus energy, we would be just 
putting it into those cars in the car park. And that's a genuine um, solar solution. So if you think of the car as being the overflow charging battery that carefully drives to a nice place where there's some solar power, if we, if we looked upon it as a broad perspective, we would have rooftop charging from everywhere available, charging electric cars driven by the workers in the factory or the business where they were working. And we would convert a, a roughly half of our transport energy consumption from fossil fuel, petrol, to genuine solar power. So one of the solutions for storing solar energy from PV, which is at the moment ridiculously expensive, is to actually just put that straight into cars that are parked around the buildings. So my prediction is that 20 years from now, that will become the norm, that probably half of the people will have an electric car at that stage because petrol cars last for about 20 years, so they're wearing out and then not being replaced. And that rooftop charging during the day will become the norm for businesses. That will be a useful but but a normal part of business activity. So there's a rumour going around that you got your car for free from Tesla. No, that's <laughs> that would be that would be really lovely if it were true. <laughs> no, like all good things, there's a price to pay. Um, uh, um, the car, so 85D. So the P is for performance, and the D is for all-wheel drive. So it's uh, each wheel is driven by a, a, an electric motor. Uh, the performance is uh, naught to 100 in three seconds. So uh, if that means anything, if you're a car nut. Um, that is very fast. Th- that is uh, faster than any uh, any available Porsche that you can buy in a dealership in Australia. Um, and it's very quiet. It's a, it's a beautiful, quiet car to drive around in. Have you ever been inconvenienced by having a flat battery? In that car, no. Mm. Um, because I charge at work, I drive to work, I just plug the car in, I drive it at home at night. I don't think I've ever charged my car at home. I've never had to. So just literally, to I don't even think about it. I just plug in as I get to work or there's a charger here in the afternoons. And so it, if you change, if you start thinking about charging your car during the day instead of at night, then the whole equation changes. You, The last time I went to a petrol station, I had a flat tyre. You still get flat tyres. But um, it's uh, it's literally... Not something that I ever even even pay attention to anymore. Um, so, have you met Elon Musk? I'm hoping to meet Elon Musk tomorrow night. Strangely, there's a there's a uh, uh, Elon Musk's, of course, been uh, been in the news supplying uh, batteries to South Australia. Yes. Uh, he's been in town this week at a um, space uh, conference that's been organised here in Adelaide, and we understand that he will be a unexpected guest tomorrow night at uh, the uh, sod-turning ceremony out at the wind farm, uh, which is out at Horndale, so that's near Jamestown, about two and a half hours north of here. Uh, so there's a there's a big celebration tomorrow night. As a Tesla owner, I was invited to, to attend, and, uh, and so we'll all be driving out there tomorrow night to have this sod-turning ceremony for the 100 megawatt hour battery pack that Teslas are, are about to install in South Australia. Uh, and it's just possible that I may have a, the opportunity to have a chat to Elon tomorrow night. Do you think he'll be impressed by your building? Uh, I'd love him to be impressed by my building. Uh, he's a fantastic marketer. He's got a fantastic handle on uh, how to market, uh, in, in, in his case, cars, for example. One of the things I liked about his his whole marketing approach was no one ever tried to sell me that vehicle. I found out about it. I read about it. I researched it on the website. I looked at people's reviews. 
when I first went to a salesperson, they weren't a salesperson, they were a customer service person, and they were just there to help me achieve my dream, which was buying the car. There was no sales at all in that sense involved in that whole transaction. And I would like in that sense to do that same process with my buildings where people know all about them, they've researched them, they've done their cost comparisons. They come to me already a committed buyer and really all I do is convert them into a crusader who advertises my product for me. A bit like Apple sells computers, you know, they have people who become absolutely enthused and dedicated to Apple technology because it's great. And that's a completely different process to conventional sales and marketing, you know, advertising campaigns, hard sell, you know, that whole uh, kind of traditional way of doing business. Does your car drive by itself? It does. Interestingly, it gets a bit annoyed with me if I take my hands off the wheel. And I don't know how it knows I took my hands off the wheel. So for example, if you simultaneously, uh, you know, want to pull up your left sock and, and reaching for a handkerchief, you know, just to blow your nose, uh, immediately the, the screen flashes and it says, <laughs> put your hands back on the wheels. <laughs> so you're not allowed to take your hands off the steering wheel, but uh, in general terms, it will, it will drive itself better than I can after a little while when you're tired and not paying attention. It's, it's anticipating more quickly than you are. And so I quite, quite often put it on. So even though I'm still holding the steering wheel, the car is, is self-driving. It will change lanes by itself. So if you put on the, the lane indicator, it will wait until there's a free space beside you because it's looking for vehicles beside you and it will then change lanes into the next lane and resume, you know, the, the process. It's very good at managing the distance between itself and the car in front. And you can set that to, you know, a range of, of uh, vehicle lengths. Um, typically, um, you get caught as a driver when the car in front of the car in front of you decides to turn left or stop for a dog or something or other. The car behind it is obscuring it. So you can't see the event happening. So the guy in front is suddenly decelerating and the car behind him, of course, starts to decelerate. And it's only then that you become aware that suddenly your stopping distance is starting to encroach. So that the, the Tesla is fantastic because it's continuously measuring the distance between you and the car in front and calculating your speed and your stopping time. And it warns you as soon as you're getting uh, approaching close to uh, coming up to the vehicle in front of you too, too quickly. So that's a, just one of their, their really nice driving features. So how far are we away from you being able to sit in the back seat of your car it to drive you to work and you to check emails, send texts and make phone calls. Yeah, so if... The technology's there. The technology is there. The problem is drivers. So if we could get rid of drivers off the road, <laughs> if all cars if all cars were self-driving, they would all drive in perfectly ordinary, predictable patterns. They would all keep away from one another. No one would pull out suddenly into a lane of traffic, you know, and have the car behind run into them, etc. So the main problem is uh, impatience and uh, lack of attention. And of course, a self-driving vehicle has neither of those attributes. So they're patient and they wait, you know, for the, the right length in front and so on. So eventually, yes, I'm sure we will move to a largely, if not entirely, self-driving autonomous, you know, vehicle driving uh, because you've got all that time. You've got time to do emails. What's your call on it? Five, ten years? Uh, so it will be driven by the rate of turnover. And in South Australia, the average vehicle lasts 21 years. So it will be a 20 to 30 year timeline line here uh, because it's a dry state and, and vehicles don't you know rust out. Um, in the eastern states, I can see it happening a little bit more quickly than that because the vehicle lifespan is lower. Once you've driven an electric vehicle, you would not by choice go back to a petrol vehicle. 
Can we go back to radiology? I'm fascinated by this. And, and that, that whole talk about that new type of housing, potentially from my point of view, is a solution to um, – that, that's the worldwide solution for us with low-cost housing. Correct. And that potentially could change the world. I'm not passing off that lightly, but I'm, and I'm fascinated by it and I want to learn more about it. But um, I think that it's the way of the future and you're onto something big. But how does that fit into your world from like you've got medical happening and now you've got building? How do you balance the two? How do you – do they overlap? Are they worlds apart? No, they're, funny enough, they're driven by the same desire. So uh, as a medico, our, our ethos is to help people. And if you like, uh, that uh, the traditional uh, motto is first do no harm. So whatever you do, you try never to to uh, do a procedure or introduce a treatment that's ad- disadvantageous. But more importantly, that we are trying to help people in their individual path through life with, in my case, pain management, which is a fantastic field to be in. Um, people who've been in pain sometimes for years, for them to get out of pain is is a life-changing event for them. You know, they... Their whole face changes, their visage, you know, their, their outlook, they, they have depression lifts. They, you know, it's a very rewarding field to be in to be able to relieve pain. The problem in general terms with medicine is you're only ever treating one person at a time. And so you, in that sense, your entire capacity to, to help and influence people is limited to the number of people you can see in a day and the number of days you want to work and the number of years you keep going at it. I, I've always had the idea that if I could bring uh, a change in technology to a million people or some millions of people, that that would be more valuable in a way than any amount of medical care that I could deliver to one person at a time. So uh, in the medical sphere, um, the best thing you can do is introduce sewerage, for example, because that stops a whole lot of, of uh, diseases being passed on. And after sewerage, you have f- fresh, uh, you know, clean water. And if you can do clean water and sewage, then you do food, food management. So you have refrigeration, you know, and those three basic strategies deliver health to, a, you know, a population which is otherwise diseased and, and dies early. So those three public health measures are the three most important things. So delivering medical care to individuals is a long way behind that in terms of net good to the public that you can produce. So an individual doctor intervening with an individual patient is is a, a rewarding career, but you're still only really only ever helping one person at a time. So I've had the idea that if I've had a good idea, I'd love to share it as widely as possible and have as many people benefit from it as possible. And for, for someone in the medical sector who's uh, you know, a graduate, would you suggest radiology as a career path is a good one? Would you suggest there's too many radiologists now? There aren't too many radiologists because the rate the technology has expanded has substantially uh, exceeded the capacity of radiologists to deliver that that process. Um, so the field is widening with what uh, they can treat and what they can... So certainly treatment is becoming um, a significant component of radiology, whereas when I started interventional radiology, it almost didn't exist. Um, out-of-hospital treatment is also expanding quite significantly, so the range of conditions that can be treated as an outpatient. I think that's very valuable from the point of view of public policy because if you can get someone who's got back pain back to work, for example, or if you can relieve uh, someone who's got shoulder pain and get them you know, back into some sort of even volunteer career is better than them sitting at home 
being disabled and feeling disabled. So just picking that as an example, any outpatient uh, treatment pathway that leads people back to a useful, um, productive life is fantastic use of resources compared to, and I'm, I'm exaggerating here, compared to the current situation where typically in one's last year of life, you absorb 25 to 30% of your lifetime's medical resources. So in that very last year of your life, and you've usually got a terminal condition or you've got a pre-terminal condition, you use an enormous amount of medical care for, at the end of the day, a very modest ex extension of your life cycle, for example. Um, so so um, using all of that resource on people who, who are inevitably, you know, in, in the very last stages of their life is not fantastic allocation of resources. Allocation of medical resources is a very complicated, uh, very problematic um, area. So health planning, if we want to call it that, because there are a whole series of competing demands on the resource and they're not all driven by the broader picture of public good. So there are um, factions, there are uh, enthusiasts, there are um, existing you know, infrastructure that has to be supported. In South Australia, we have, uh, for whatever reason, decided to allocate one-sixth of the entire health budget for the whole state to do the hotel services for one building. That's the new Royal Adelaide Hospital. So one-sixth of our entire health budget will be spent for the next 30 years on the physical building and the hotel services to support the Royal Adelaide Hospital. What are the hotel services defined uh, Cleaning, uh, porters, uh, security guards. One-sixth? Of the entire health budget is being spent on one building, which is not in itself delivering any health care. So that's a good example of an allocation of resources that I've I've don't believe is the best use of resources. So do they have to take resources away from... Inevitably. ...what's currently being used by Correct. all the other medical practitioners in the state? Indirectly or directly, they have to downsize other services or they have to tax everybody more. They're the, they're the only two possibilities. So that's an allocation of resources that if you, if you look at it from that point of view, we could have had um, one of the best health uh, research institutes in the world if we'd allocated all of that money to health researchers as opposed to a construction of a building, for example. So we are misallocating resources in health if, if our perspective or if our focus is on delivering the best good or the greatest good to the most people. Can we move over to finance now? Do you have an in-house accountant working for you here? We don't. We use a firm of accountants. Um, we have moved recently, and I don't know whether should we be naming names. No, 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 don't name them. <laughs> uh, I'm I've been uh, lucky enough to have the same accountant for most of my my uh, professional life. He's moved a couple of times from firm to firm, and we've followed him rather than stay with the firm. And how much of your headspace is allocated to finance and all things money? on a daily basis do you are you so hands-on that you're checking your bank balances every day um, I think it's much more sensible to have structures in place um, first of all good reporting structures so we run a business um, we have around 50 employees um, so that's a big uh, wages packet every week and obviously we need to know what cash flow uh, you know where our uh, where our uh, expected outcomes are going so everything's you know cash flowed and we know 
through the year where we're going to be at. Um, but, but in general terms, um, trying to run a business by looking at how much money you made is much less successful than looking at how the business is delivering a service, making sure that your service is pertinent, relevant to your your uh, patients, if it's a medical practice, making sure that your quality of service is maintained, making sure that you're keeping abreast of current technology so that you're offering services which are appropriate to the needs of your patients. If you, in general terms, deliver good services and you have good structures in place for managing your staff and HR, to some extent that, that then flows to a successful business which is making money. If you just look at the end product, which is making money, you're going to miss the steps along the way that caused your business to work efficiently and effectively in the first place. So you'd call it, is it, is it um, a sort of like a micro patient focused um, analysis of your business that you're doing on a regular basis to work out whether you feel as though your patients are happy coming to you for the services that you're providing to them? We have a very intense process of quality assurance at every level in the business. So, um, you know, at, a, at a, a basic level, radiation protection, for example, there's a licensing requirement, there are monitoring requirements. We measure and report the amount of radiation we've used on patients um, to make sure that those amounts of radiation are, are within the guidelines, you know, established of what's a, an appropriate amount, what's an ideal amount of radiation to use. So radiation protection, if you like, is at one level, the quality assurance that is an automatic part of the process. Um, we look at uh, the, um, the the mix of workflow. Um, we so, for example, patient waiting time for me is a critical factor. I noticed that in reception, patients hate waiting. And, I know. And why should they? Press the button after fifteen minutes and and let them know that you're not happy that That's you've right. been waiting. So, if you are making sure that your patients are given appropriate timely appointments. Um, so that the doctor is available at the time they're allocated or available, you know, within a, within 15 minutes is our target, um, that patient is likely to go home and say, hey, I had a great service today. These people looked after me. Uh, phone manner at the front desk is critical. In fact, the front desk is probably as important as any other part of the process so that their uh, patients are politely answered, their queries are, are dealt with, their concerns are met. All of those things which are not medical at all in one sense are critical from a patient's point of view that they feel that they are being looked after and as well as being looked after so that they that their work that their that their movement through our workflow is smooth for them is comfortable is respectful so they're they're not driven by money but the net result is our rating room is full so that tells me that we're delivering a good service self-managed super funds do you believe in them do you have one i do exclusively (laughs) uh my view is that um, if you're giving your money to some manager and he's charging you 30% of the income that year, he has to be doing a fantastic job. So if the income that year on your super fund was, I'm saying 5% and it's a 2% service fee, he's just taken 40% of your hard-earned income to do probably not very much other than park the money somewhere. Uh, I'm, I'm not a big uh, fan of the Australian stock market. So if we have a look, uh, the first time the Australian stock market got to 7,000 was in 2007, I'm going to say, uh, 2006 or seven. It's still not back at 7,000 now. So 10 years later, if you had invested your your money in the supermarket, in the stock market in 2007, you would still be waiting 
just to get a net return. Just to recoup zero. your losses. Correct. You'd still be waiting. Correct. Uh, there are a few things about the stock market. If you factor in the the effect of uh, the stock market reports either the top 20 or top 50 or top 100 stocks, if you're in a company which goes bad, you drop out of that list. So automatically every year, the failures are removed from the list. Mm. So over a period of time, we don't follow the same 100 companies over a 20-year cycle. <laughs> we follow the best 100 companies. Now, if you were investing in a company and you knew next year it was going to go bad, well, of course, you would sell your shares when it was still valuable. But in fact, if you've invested in a company which goes bad and drops out of the top 100, whatever measure you're using, you've still made the loss. You've still had to sell out at you know two cents a share or, or the company closed. It then takes new companies coming in who enter the top 100 and says, oh, you know, gee whiz, they've gone up this year. So it's a false measure of the performance of companies in general if you only measure the performance of the top 50 or the top 500 because you're automatically excluding the failures. So when they quote performance over a long period of time, the stock market is artificially reporting better results than if you had owned the same stocks for that period of time because not all of those stocks are going to do as well. Some of them are going to drop out of them. If you uh, if you do some sort of exchange um, trading fund, you know, where you're just following the mean, if you were following the mean in Australia, your money still wouldn't be worth what it was worth in 2007. So it's not been a great investment. Counteracting against that, you do get uh, um, some tax credits um, where the company taxes ultimately handed on to the individual taxpayer. So if you're on a high tax bracket, those imputed tax credits can be valuable. Uh, the Australian stock market is not overvalued to the same extent as the American stock market. So our earnings multiple at the moment would be kind of 14 or 15 to 1 as a median. So that's about what a share price should be. In America, the multiple's now 27 times oh. earnings. Um, so on the face of it, the American stock market is substantially overvalued. It's overvalued to the same extent that it was in 1928. And so at some point soon, if events pan out as they usually do, there has to be a substantial correction in the American stock market to get them back to something like 15 times annual earnings. Uh, I heard um, the other day uh, uh, Myers reported their results. Um, so their earnings across the group was $11 million net. And I thought, how many employees have they got? And how much capital have they got invested? And if you divide that into the $11 million, that return on investment is terrible. And in general terms, retail is probably not a good area to be invested in at the moment because the internet is going to take over 30% of sales over the next 10 to 20 years, let's say. So if you're invested in traditional uh, you know, floor space, you know, retailing, then you're probably on a losing market for the next 20 years. If you then go, all right, well, I'm going to invest in um, in uh, an up-and-comer, I'm going to invest in Amazon, you know, fantastic share price, or Tesla, amazing share price. Tesla is now capitalised at more than Ford, motor company in, in America. He's not producing anything like the number of vehicles, but the share market has valued him at, you know, $400 a share. So those people who look like they're going to be great tech successes, uh, Amazon, for example, I don't believe has actually reported a profit in 20 years. I think uh, they so keep in reinvesting into the company. They do. So in general terms, if you're reliant on a fund manager and he's following the stock market, 
then he's probably over the last 10 years not made a fantastic investment for you. So in your super fund, is it property? Do you have properties or do you still have some stocks but you're not too enthusiastic about them? So uh, my advice to investors is uh, focus on what you know. So uh, a lot of my effort goes into my own business and and trying to improve the quality of the business. We talked about that. Um, if you understand the stock market and you think you can do better than the average return of the average fund manager, I'm not saying don't invest in the stock market. Uh, if you understand real estate, you're probably better off investing in real estate that you understand. So I think the most important thing when you're making investment decisions is to uh, not go in as a blind investor relying upon someone else because probably they're going to take a percentage of your money by some means of a fee or something else. Uh, you're better off in understanding the process in which you're investing, having a view as to what's likely to be successful in the long term and investing accordingly. So for me, uh, coming from Sydney, the property market has been uh, second to none as a, as a long-term investment vehicle. It is called real estate for a reason. Um, what about insurance, life insurance, trauma, TPD, income protection? Do you believe in it? Do you Are you overweight in it? Or do you think that it's something that doesn't fit, your, fit into your portfolio? Um, again, without being too personal, uh, I see the value of insurance as managing a risk which you could not otherwise accommodate. So if you can afford to write your car off, over the life of a vehicle, you're better off not insuring it because eventually the insurance premiums must at least equal, if not exceed, the loss that you would incur. Having said that, if you have an individual asset that you um, that you own and can't afford to lose, like your income earning potential, potentially, uh, then then it would only be sensible to insure against that if the value of the insurance is not excessive. You know, if the cost of the insurance is not excessive. So. Uh, we all insure our houses, not expecting them to burn down. Interestingly, we don't insure our marriages, although 50% of the marriages do burn down. Uh, and, and maybe we'd be, you know, as a society, we'd be better off with the expectation that all people getting married entered into an insurance deal, in other words, a prenuptial, where they agreed at the beginning what would happen at the end of the relationship. So there was no need to employ, you know, very expensive lawyers and a lot of heartache entering into a situation which is already turmoil and and uh, so a breakup is always a very unhappy process. Uh, the legal system, if we follow Westminster, so the Australian legal system is adversarial, meaning you get two sides and they're going to fight. Uh, so having partners who are willing to fight backed by lawyers who just are too willing to fight is a recipe for disaster. Uh, I noticed that a couple of days ago they announced an overhaul of the Family Law Act. Um, so if we were if we were sensible about insurance, one of the insurances we would take out is we would automatically enter prenuptial agreements with our partners and make sure that at the end of the relationship there's a comfortable parting of the ways with a pre-organized, pre-agreed set of rules. You asked me about insurance. Yeah, I, that's I a think good that's example. A fascinating of, idea. I never even actually even thought of that. Of insurance against a high risk, you know, that's a, you know that's a big risk. Um, we insure our motor vehicles principally because the risk of being liable for a third-party claim is is m much greater than the value of the vehicle. So again, very sensible risk management. Our businesses are all insured against uh, loss of income because 
if there was a fire in the building, uh, we would be carrying all the costs of running the the capital, for example, the, all the machines are all leased. Um, and so that would be you know, a, a major risk for us not to be able to at least cover the mandatory outgoings in the period of time when you reinstated your business. So I think insurance in general terms should be a consideration of, of uh, acceptable versus unacceptable risk where you cover yourself for, for losses that can't otherwise be managed from within your, your capacity to, to pay or, or sustain the loss. Wow. Um, so I've almost finished my questions, but I just want to talk to talk to you about violins. Now, I, I know that you love playing your violin. I'm a passionate violin player. How many years have you been playing? Uh, I'm going to say over 50 because that would be giving my age away if I got any tighter than that. Um, and uh, I can still remember the first time I picked up a violin. I, uh, I was six and um, there we are. We got even closer to my age now. <laughs> and... Uh, I was so excited about this violin that my parents had got me as a present and uh, I wasn't allowed to play it until I'd got to the violin teacher. So I was hanging out for this oh. very first lesson because I really wanted to play this violin. Uh, over the next um, 10 years or so, I, I studied um, moderately consistently and I would say consistent practice as a student is the single thing that sets a good player apart from a not so good player. Um, at the, about the age of 16, uh, the HSC, so the high school certificate it's called in New South Wales, and the, you know, the studying for intense um, effort to get into medical school ultimately took, took me out of violin playing for a period of time. Uh, I started again when my eldest daughter was seven and she said to me, I was trying to get her to play the violin, you know, so, I was kind of revisiting my own childhood and I said, oh, it's great fun, you know, you really got to do it. It's, you know, it's something you'll really enjoy. And my seven-year-old daughter said to me, oh, um, Dad, do you, do you play the violin? I said, yeah, yeah, I do, thinking I used to. And uh, she said to me, oh, have you still got your violin? I haven't, I've never seen you play it. I thought, she's right. She's never seen me play the violin. It had sat in the cupboard all those years. I'd carried it around with me from place to place, but I just didn't get it out and play it. So I, I got out the violin and I started playing again. And uh, it, was, it was very funny. I, I joined a local string orchestra. I was sitting at the back of the second violins, which is about as far back as you can go without being a viola player. And um, the guy sitting next to me said, oh, you know, you know, how long have you been playing? I sort of did a mental calculation, said oh, a long time. And he said, oh, um, who's your violin teacher at the moment? And I said to him, oh, I, I don't have a violin teacher at the moment. And afterwards I realised he was suggesting maybe I should get a violin teacher oh. again. <laughs> so I went back, got out my books, practised all the technicals and effectively kind of relearned at high speed the process that I'd gone through as a kid. And I still had all my, all my you know, scales and, and arpeggios and, um, you know, minor thirds and sixths and all the things you do. Uh, and eventually I uh, got myself back uh, playing better than I had been able to play as, as a child, which was fabulous. Um, joined a string quartet that has played um, every second Sunday for about the last 30 years together. And uh, we've played right through the classical string repertoire a few times uh, for about the first five years that I was playing with these guys. And they'd been together longer than I had. I joined their group. Um, they would say to me, oh, you know, do you like uh, Mozart, you know, Kershaw 465? And I'd have to say, I've never heard <laughs> Kershaw 465. <laughs> So after about five years of playing, you know, consistently, I started to see things for the second time. So 
in that five years, I was pretty much always playing something that I that I had never seen, and so I got better at sight reading and being able to you know kind of think fast enough to work out which position I wanted to be in and how I was going to bow it. And and after that, it became more and more about um, uh, the the way you can make music with someone else or fit into a, you know a group that's trying to make a, a cohesive sound and and play with a certain style or with a certain passion or so it becomes about making the music not about reading the notes and if you can get to that point with a musical instrument it, it really is a fantastic uh fabulous experience so my um then seven-year-old daughter in fact did learn the violin for a while and she's a bit of a um i won't say rebellious but she's certainly her own person and uh, she decided she was going to play the cello so um we went ahead and got a cello for her and she took that up and went on to become a really uh, delightful cello player and it's become part of her adult um, experience as a, as a cellist. She um, teaches little kids now to uh, music in school and um, so she's um, she's a quite accomplished player in her own right but but also enjoys teaching other, other little children that same sort of skill base. Um, my second daughter... Um, uh, moved from the violin to the viola and got a scholarship to um, high school playing her viola. Um, uh, number three, her daughter is currently still playing the violin and um, and she's now re really a very adept little violinist. She, uh, she's she got a great singing voice, so her singing has become more important to her than her violin playing. Uh, my number four child, uh, is also uh, a very adept violinist and uh, he plays without effort he's he's a great great tone and he's he just he's a natural he's you know naturally gifted and doesn't do a lot of practice despite my efforts uh, but uh, he he's again got to a point where he he's you know able to enjoy uh, the music that he's making not just struggling with the notes and uh, my littlest one at this stage is um, able to sing in tune, which is a fabulous skill to have at the start and uh, has yet to take up a musical instrument. Now, he's not yet three, so I guess we can forgive him for not, not yet getting, getting onto the keyboard or, or, the, uh, or the strings. So I'm sure he will, he will in due course, um, probably start on the violin, I would guess. Um. What is your favourite piece to play? Ah, funnily enough, Mozart Kirschel four six five. It uh, it's called the Dissonance, and so it's a string quartet where Mozart was experimenting with uh, the almost a clash between notes that are very close to one another, for example, or or having two of the four instruments playing uh, slightly uh, at odds with the other two, and so it was it was one of the early pieces of music that. Um, led over the next 150 years to uh, the sort of um, Stravinsky, you know, that 20th century sound of, of these really interesting clashes of sound. Or, or Brahms um, wrote some fabulous music where you, uh, in an orchestra, might be playing 3-4 while someone else is playing 4-4. Four, four. So, you know, he literally has the music, you know, head-bunning against itself. Um, and, and one of the very early examples of that of Mozart, who, and at this stage he'd written more than 400 pieces of music, so 465 was the 465th wow. in his catalogue of roughly 600 pieces that he wrote. And he starts to experiment with this idea of, of clashing or, or, or um, you know, um, interference of, of sounds with each other. So, and it's a, it's a fascinating piece to play. 
um, uh, four very different parts to the to the string quartet, and each one of them has uh, a, a kind of a challenge, which is not just technical. It's more it's more about the way you interact with the other people. Dr. Roger Davies, thank you ever so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed our chat, and I'm really hoping that the listeners enjoy it half as much as I have today. Oh, thank it, you. It's been absolutely my pleasure, and thank you for uh, the conversation that we've had. Been great. Thank you. The Accounting Insider. This is another thing that a lot of investors are unaware of. There's got to be an easier way. With Kim Metzkin. It's achievable for anyone. It doesn't cost anything to set up a business. Because there are many great ideas out there, but it's the people that make ideas happen. Because once you unlock this formula, you, there's no reason to stop. Yeah. You just get better and better at it. You just make so much money out of it.